Hello, and welcome back to the Perspectives in History podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening. This is episode 6 of our series on the Korean War, The Long Way Back. So I'm sure if you're listening to this episode around the time that I'm releasing it, which is to say the second or third week of February, I'm sure you're wondering where this episode has been for the past, say, two weeks. The simple truth of the matter is that it's been incomplete, and I know you've heard this spiel a few times by now, but as I've been producing this series, I've had to make adjustments to the scripts as I've gone along, and these adjustments have turned out to be far more extensive than I originally thought they would be, to the point where I basically had to rewrite this entire episode from scratch. Honestly, the only person to blame here is myself for not going back over the script thoroughly enough when I first decided to produce this series, and suffice it to say I've learned my lesson here and hopefully won't repeat this same mistake in the future. For the time being though, I am committed to seeing this series through to the end. I won't go on an official hiatus, but I also cannot keep up a commitment to the original release schedule. I'll try to do my best to get a new episode uploaded roughly every two weeks or so until the end of this series, but again, I can't really make any promises in that regard. So anyway, with all that out of the way, let's get on with the show. We covered quite a bit in the previous episode, but to briefly recap, we began with an extended discussion of the nations that contributed forces to the UN coalition in Korea, their motives, their needs, and how they were integrated into the overall force. Next, we picked up where we left off with our main narrative, with UN forces having retaken most of South Korea's pre-war territory, including, crucially, the capital city of Seoul. There were disagreements within the UN camp as to what course of action to take next. Now that the North Koreans had been forced back across the 38th parallel, should their mission in Korea be considered accomplished? Would it be best for Korea to return to the pre-war status quo? Or should the UN coalition press their advantage and cross the 38th parallel, vanquished the DPRK for good, and established the Republic of Korea as the sole legitimate government on the peninsula? For the hero of the hour, Commander-in-Chief of the UNC Douglas MacArthur, total victory appeared to be the only sensible option, and he was not the only one who thought this way. Faced with mounting pressure, in late September 1950, the Joint Chiefs of Staff granted MacArthur authorization to cross the 38th parallel. UN forces advanced rapidly through the north in the following month. Pyongyang fell on October 19th, and on the 26th, the first ROK troops reached the Yalu River, which separates Korea from China. All the while, Beijing had been monitoring the situation with mounting concern. Chairman of the Communist Party Mao Zedong was convinced of the urgent need for China to intervene militarily in Korea. For obvious reasons, a total UN victory in Korea would pose a serious threat to China's national security, but for Mao, this was a matter of ideology just as much as it was one of geopolitics. The socialist principle of international solidarity dictated that China should come to the aid of their Korean comrades in their struggle against capitalist imperialism. If the Chinese were to betray the Koreans in their greatest hour of need, how then could they expect anyone else to come to their aid if they were ever attacked in turn? In short, there was a strong case to be made in favor of intervention, but the opposite was just as true. Many members of the Communist Party's Politburo were initially skeptical of China's ability to contend militarily with the United States and its allies. Ultimately, however, the chairman's arguments won the day, and by October 8th, the decision had been made to intervene in Korea. If Chinese troops were to reach the front lines before the UN coalition forces were able to occupy the entire northern half of the peninsula, they would have to act quickly. And indeed they did. On the evening of October 19th, 
12 divisions of the newly formed Chinese People's Volunteer Army crossed the Yalu River, entering Korean territory. Six more divisions would follow suit a week later, bringing the PVA's total strength to about 260,000 men. The commander-in-chief of the PVA, General Peng Dehuai, determined that, given the direness of the strategic situation, they should go immediately on the offensive to push the UN forces back. In the first phase of the operation, the offensive was concentrated against the units of the ROK army, which were deemed to be easy targets. The first confrontations between the Chinese and UN forces took place on October 25th, near the towns of Anjong and Unsan in North Korea's North Pyongan province, in the extreme northwest of the country. The Battle of Anjong resulted in a near destruction of the ROK Army's 2nd Corps. As for Unsan, while the battle did result in a Chinese victory, the timely arrival of American forcements saved the ROK Army 1st Infantry Division from being completely overrun. At his improvised headquarters within an abandoned mineshaft some 30 miles to the north, General Peng welcomed the news of these battles with cautious optimism. He had not been anticipating the Americans to be present at Unsan, and while he was pleased to hear of his troops' success in routing the enemy, he declined to press the attack. General Peng instead opted to bide his time, await the arrival of more troops from China, and plan the second phase of the offensive. From the time that they crossed the border right up until the moment when they first clashed with U.S. and ROK troops at Anjang and Unsan, the entry of the Chinese People's Volunteer Army into Korea had gone completely unnoticed by the enemy. Even older Western sources, which otherwise exhibit some serious bias against the Chinese and North Koreans, are willing to admit that this was quite the impressive achievement. The disaster that was shortly to befall the UNC was one that could have been averted. They had not been able to detect the PVA's movements because they were purposely not looking for them. The UNC's leadership had totally convinced themselves that the end of the war, or rather police action, was within sight, that there would be no foreign intervention. As historian Max Hastings writes, quote, their senses were deadened to any fresh perception, end quote. Unfortunately for their men on the ground, it would take quite some time before they were able to break away from this kind of thinking. The Chinese intervention also caused a great deal of confusion for their enemy. Reports from the front regarding the early engagements with the PVA made their way up the chain of command, but the men in the field did not have that much better of a grasp on the situation than their leaders did. From these reports, these said leaders drew a variety of different, often contradictory, conclusions. Were these partisans, remnants of the Korean People's Army? If these were indeed Chinese troops that they were facing, in what capacity were they serving? Were these volunteers, or had they been ordered here by Beijing? If so, what was the scale of their involvement? Was this just a limited incursion for the purposes of securing the border, or a full-scale intervention? In these critical early days, any one guess was as good as another. General MacArthur's chief of intelligence, Major General Charles A. Willoughby, ruled out the possibility of a full-scale intervention almost immediately. By his estimate, there were no more than 34,000 Chinese troops in Korea at that time. MacArthur took him at his word, writing in a report to the UN that, quote, there is no evidence to suggest that Chinese communist units, at least as such, have entered Korea, end quote. But while the general continued to project his usual image of confidence publicly, Behind closed doors, he indicated his growing concern that the worst-case scenario, the very one that he had reassured President Truman was highly improbable, had in fact come to pass. On November 6th, he issued new orders to Air Force Lieutenant General George Stratemeyer to escalate the bombing campaign in North Korea. We discussed this particular aspect of the conflict at some length in Episode 4 of this series. To recap what was said there, 
The North Korean Air Force, which as of June 1950 consisted of about 130 Soviet-made World War II-era planes, was effectively destroyed within days of the United States' entry into the war. The inability of the North Koreans to challenge American air superiority left them defenseless against the subsequent bombing campaign. Until this point, that is to say early November 1950, the U.S. Air Force had followed a precision bombing strategy, exclusively using conventional explosives, making some effort to limit attacks to legitimate strategic targets, and to minimize collateral damage. This approach was seen as being more efficient and more humane than the alternative, but there was a growing number of Air Force personnel who found these restrictions a bit cumbersome. They wanted to engage in a firebombing campaign. The tactic of firebombing was an innovation of the Second World War, as historian Bruce Cummings explains, quote, After much experimentation and scientific study by Germany, Britain, and the United States, by 1943 it had become clear that a city was much easier to burn down than to blow up. Combinations of incendiaries and conventional bombs could destroy large sections of a city rather quickly, whereas conventional bombs had a much more limited impact. Magnesium alloy thermite sticks manufactured by the million and bundled together did the trick. When supplemented by mixtures of benzol, rubber, resins, gels, and phosphorus, they formed an unprecedentedly destructive blockbuster flaming bombs that could wipe out entire cities in a matter of mere minutes. 17 in the case of the attack on Würzburg on March 16th, 1945." World War II-era incendiary munitions typically used thermite or white phosphorus as the primary incendiary component, but the Korean War saw the first widespread use of a new type of incendiary weapon, napalm. Napalm consists of a mixture of a gelling agent and volatile petrochemicals, which combine to create a gelatinous and highly flammable liquid. When used in explosive ordnance, Napalm can cause far more widespread destruction than earlier incendiary weapons were capable of. In the popular imagination, at least in the United States, napalm is most closely associated with the Vietnam War, and not without good reason, but its use in Korea is not nearly as well known or widely discussed. Over 60,000 tons of napalm bombs were dropped on Korea between 1950 and 1953. Some historians even claim that, because Korea was a more industrialized and urbanized country, the use of napalm was far more effective in Korea than in Vietnam. Now, I'm sure some listeners might be wondering why napalm is not classified as a chemical weapon, and why its usage was not restricted as such. Without going into too much detail, napalm does not fit the definition of a chemical weapon as outlined in the 1928 Geneva Protocol, or subsequent international agreements for that matter. As a side note, there were allegations that the United States did use biological weapons during the Korean War that have not been conclusively proven or disproven. We will discuss this further in a future episode. But while the use of napalm was technically permitted under international law, that did not mean that there were not people within the UN coalition who expressed misgivings about its usage in Korea. One such critic was none other than Winston Churchill, who resumed the office of Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in late 1951. The following is a message that he wrote to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Omar Bradley, in August 1952. Quote, I do not like this napalm bombing at all. A fearful lot of people must be burned, not by ordinary fire, but by the contents of the bomb. We should make a great mistake to commit ourselves to approval of a very cruel form of warfare affecting the civilian population. Napalm in the Second World War was devised by us and used by fighting men in action against tanks and against heavily defended structures. No one ever thought about splashing it about all over the civilian population. I will take no share in the responsibility for it. 
It is one thing to use napalm in close battle of ground troops, or from the air in the immediate aid of ground troops. It is quite another thing to torture great masses of unarmed people by use of it. End quote. Churchill's distaste for napalm is somewhat curious, considering that he previously used his position as the UK's war minister to advocate for the use of actual chemical weapons, such as mustard gas, in various conflicts that Britain was involved in following World War I, namely the Russian Civil War and the Iraqi Revolt of 1920. To give Churchill the benefit of the doubt here, perhaps he changed his mind on the issue in the time since then, but all that is a story for another time. Based on anecdotal evidence, Churchill's attitude towards napalm and similar weapons such as white phosphorus appears to have been shared by most British soldiers to a certain extent, as there are a few recorded instances of British personnel refusing to use such munitions. The Americans' continuous use of napalm in Korea did strain relations somewhat between the US and their partners in the coalition, the UK chief among them, but this ultimately did not amount to anything. Churchill's comments to General Bradley were not published for the duration of the war, and Churchill allowed Bradley to issue a public statement claiming that the UK supported the use of napalm in Korea, even though the Prime Minister could not bring himself to say as much openly. Arguments against the use of napalm, and firebombing tactics in general for that matter, tended to hinge on either ethical concerns or matters of efficacy, sometimes both. I talked a bit about both of these in episode 4, but in short, Many in the U.S. military hierarchy were not certain that such widespread destruction actually produced the intended effect, that of breaking the enemy's morale, in hopes of ending the war more quickly. Due to these reservations and the desire of U.S. foreign policymakers to limit the scale of the conflict early on, napalm was not used extensively in the initial months of the war. Still, there were some high-ranking officers in the Air Force who were of a different mind. As early as July 1950, Air Force General Emmett O'Donnell requested permission to firebomb five major North Korean cities. His plan was rejected by General MacArthur, who told him, quote, I'm not prepared to go that far yet, end quote. Even as late as October, MacArthur rejected another such proposal, writing, quote, The general policy enunciated from Washington negates such an attack unless the military situation clearly requires it. Under present circumstances, this is not the case, end quote. By November of that year, however, it seemed the general had changed his mind. On the 3rd, General George Stratemeyer once again requested MacArthur's permission to firebomb the city of Sinuju. This time, he found the general far more receptive to his idea, not only granting approval, but encouraging him to escalate the bombing campaign even further. Quote, burn it down if you so desire. Not only that, Strat, but burn and destroy as a lesson any of these other towns that you consider of military value to the enemy. End quote. Two days later, Stratemeyer issued the following order, quote, Aircraft under 5th Air Force control will destroy all other targets, including all buildings capable of affording shelter. Every installation, facility, and village in North Korea now becomes a military and tactical target, end quote. This marked the beginning of a new phase in the air war in Korea. That very same day, Kangye, the city to which Kim Il-sung and the rest of the DPRK's government had relocated after the fall of Pyongyang, was subjected to a devastating attack by American bombers. Three-fourths of the city were incinerated in the bombing. None of North Korea's major urban centers were spared during this intensified bombing campaign, with several cities being all but completely destroyed. The destruction was so complete that a common complaint of U.S. Air Force pilots was that there were no more targets that were worth attacking. The North Koreans, meanwhile, were forced to relocate all critical infrastructure, hospitals, schools, factories, government offices, even housing, underground. Shortly after the war's conclusion, the USAF compiled a report assessing the level of damage to individual North Korean cities. Some of their findings were as follows. Sinuju, 
50% destroyed. Kangye, 60% destroyed. Pyongyang, 75% destroyed. Nampo, 80% destroyed. Hamhong, 80% destroyed. Monsan, 80% destroyed. Hongnam, 85% destroyed. Sariwan, 90% destroyed. Huangju, 97% destroyed. Xianju, 100% destroyed. Again, these estimates come directly from the US Air Force and not from the North Koreans themselves. These figures represent a level of devastation that is rarely seen in the history of warfare. US State Department official Dean Rusk, who was then serving in the capacity of Assistant Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, reported that, quote, the US has bombed everything that moved in North Korea and every brick that stood on top of another, end quote. A first-hand description of conditions on the ground in North Korea circa August 1951 was written by Hungarian journalist Tibor Mere, quote, However brutal the Koreans on either side may have been in this war, I saw destruction and horrible things committed by the Americans. Everything that moved in North Korea was a military target. Peasants in the fields were often gunned down by pilots who, and this was my impression, amused themselves by shooting moving targets. I witnessed a complete devastation between the Yalu River and the capital of Pyongyang. There were simply no more cities in Korea. The incessant, indiscriminate bombing forced us to always travel at night. We traveled in moonlight so that my impression was that I was traveling on the moon itself, because there was nothing but devastation. Every city was nothing more than a collection of chimneys. I don't know why the houses collapsed, but the chimneys did not. But I went through a city that used to be of 200,000 inhabitants, and all I saw was thousands of chimneys." End quote. The human cost of these bombings is more difficult to quantify. Some would argue that it is truly incalculable. The Democratic People's Republic of Korea Ministry of Defense estimates the number of North Korean civilian casualties at 1,550,000. If accurate, this represents a staggering 12 to 15% of North Korea's pre-war population. However, it is not possible to draw any definitive conclusions from this report for a few reasons. Firstly, this figure is only an estimate based on census data. Secondly, the report does not break down the casualty figures into deaths, wounded, and missing, nor does it attempt to calculate the number of casualties directly attributable to the bombing campaigns. Data provided by the South Korean Ministry of Defense may be able to provide some insight, however. According to their report, South Korean civilian casualties during the war numbered 990,968, of which approximately 37% were deaths, 23% were missing, and 40% were wounded. If one can assume that the proportions were similar in the North, and apply these to the DPRK's figure, that would put the number of North Korean civilian deaths at approximately 573,500. Exactly how many of these deaths can be attributed to the bombings is, again, quite difficult to ascertain. In this regard, I believe that a figure cited by Soviet ambassador to the DPRK Vladimir Razuviev may be close to the truth. He estimated in 1953 that 282,000 North Korean civilians died from bombing raids during the war, which amounts to just about half of all civilian deaths. An indeterminate but presumably large proportion of the civilian deaths can be attributed to the bombings indirectly, too. This was a fact acknowledged by General Curtis LeMay, head of the Strategic Air Command from 1948 to 1957. In a 1988 interview, LeMay, who was often referred to as Bombs Away LeMay, stated the following, quote, Right at the start of the war, unofficially, I slipped a message in under the carpet at the Pentagon that we ought to turn the SAC loose with some incendiaries on North Korean towns. The answer came back, under the carpet again, that there would be too many civilian casualties. We couldn't do anything like that. 
We went over there and fought the war and eventually burned down every town in North Korea anyway, some way or another, and some in South Korea too. Over a period of about three years, we killed off, what, 20% of the population in Korea? As direct casualties of war or from starvation or exposure? Over a period of three years, this seemed to be acceptable to everybody. But to kill a few people at the start right away, no, we can't seem to stomach that. End quote. Now, I apologize for getting diverted so far away from the main narrative for such a time, but I feel it is important to discuss the air war and bombing campaigns at some length, since these are perhaps the most consequential aspects of the Korean War, and simultaneously some of the least discussed and least well understood. I'll have more to say about this subject in the final episode of the series, but I have one final point to make regarding the subject before returning to the main narrative. Thus far, I've only discussed the physical aspects of the bombing campaign, that is to say, the effects that it had on North Korea's demographics, its economy, and so on. But just as significant were the effects that it had on the national psyche of the North Korean people, which can be difficult to overstate. To give you a sense of how civilians on the ground experienced these bombings and reacted to them in the moment, I'll now read a couple of vignettes from Ghost Flames, Life and Death in a Hidden War, Korea, 1950-1953, by Charles J. Hanley. The first account is written from the perspective of Alan Winnington, a British journalist embedded with the North Korean military, whom I've quoted from previously describing the massacre at Daejeon. The following passage describes the aftermath of the bombing of the North Korean city of Wonsan on July 22, 1950. Quote, Entering the city's north end, the British journalist, his driver, and his Chinese-speaking Korean escort are stunned at what they find. In their bulky Russian sedan at the end of a 102-mile journey across the peninsula from Pyongyang, they drive down streets lined with collapsed and burning houses, past desperate residents collecting what they can from the ruins. In his first dispatch from Korea back to London's Communist Daily Worker, the correspondent reports that he is told that more than a thousand homes and other buildings have been destroyed in Monsan, and 1,249 people have been killed, mostly women and children. The largest girls' school at the center of the working-class district, and the primary school on the shore were hit. He speaks with a man named Wan, whose wife and children were killed while he was away at work. He tells Winnington that he finds his life no longer worth living, except... I would give my last drop of blood to get revenge and drive those murdering dogs from our country. From Wonsan, Winnington returns to Pyongyang, and from there immediately sets out south to catch up with the advancing Korean People's Army and report directly from the front lines. Not far from Pyongyang, he meets the war head-on. He and his companions have hidden their car beneath roadside trees to eat a lunch of cold rice when a U.S. P-51 Mustang fighter bomber suddenly swoops down and opens fire along the road, crowded with footbound peasants. Winnington throws himself on the ground, deafened by the noise of the low-flying plane. It's gone just as abruptly, leaving behind screams, moans, babies' cries, calls for help, death, tears, bereavement, and life disfigurement, Winnington reports. End quote. The next account is written from the perspective of Chung Dong-kyu, an 18-year-old North Korean medical student who witnessed the bombing of his home city of Chongjin on July 30th, 1950. A quick warning, what I'm about to read is actually rather graphic, so listener discretion is advised. Quote, Chung Dong-kyu is heading for the smoke and flames of central Chongjin. He and the other students of Chongjin Medical School bounce down the main road in a convoy of open trucks, hastily organized as a first aid medical corps responding to the devastating bombing. They drive as far as they can into the city before rubble blocks the roads. The young men and women, given first aid kits of bandages, antiseptics, morphine, and other items, are divided into teams of four or five and sent in every direction wearing Red Cross armbands. The need must be great, Chung thinks, 
if the authorities are calling on untested medical students to help. He quickly sees that the need is overwhelming. He first comes across a young woman, crushed between two concrete slabs, her left arm neatly severed, her mouth agape, and her dead eyes wide open, cast upwards with a look of shock and horror. The young student freezes at the sight of his first war casualty. His heart sinks. I can only hope that she died instantly, he tells himself. Fanning out, the students see through the smoke and dust that hundreds of civilians lie dead or grievously wounded across the landscape of ruins. Many are missing arms or legs. Disemboweled intestines and shredded chunks of flesh lie beside bodies. Dust-covered heads or limbs protrude from among piles of brick, plaster, and wood. In a kind of daze, Chung and the others rush to wherever they hear screaming or crying. Other victims are found, sitting silently in shock. They are able to help some by cleaning, sterilizing, and bandaging wounds, but in many cases, all they can do is administer a shot of morphine to victims trapped beneath rubble as impromptu groups of local rescuers try to dig them out. For hours on end, the students dispense first aid as best they can, using rudimentary knowledge and skills learned in the classroom and in clinics. At sunset, city officials suspend the rescue efforts for the night. As the exhausted students are driven back to the school, Chung can see that in the city of 100,000 people, the extent of the destruction means that countless injured will surely die before being pulled from the rubble. He has come face to face with the stunning cruelty of war. He feels a burning hatred inside him for all those who make it. End quote. I do apologize for the rather graphic nature of that last passage, but I feel that including those descriptions was the most effective way to convey the gravity of the scene, and to explain why this young medical student, who, prior to the war, was not exceptionally passionate about his country or its ideology, developed such an intense hatred for the Americans. Chung Dong-kyu's experience of the war was by no means unique, either. Millions of North Korean citizens were subjected to similarly horrific scenes on a regular basis for the better part of three years, with no family being left completely unaffected by the war. These experiences created fertile ground for the regime's anti-American and anti-Western messaging, and these combined to inculcate in the majority of North Koreans a profound, undying hatred and constant fear of America and the West that largely persists to this day. Originally, I had planned to go directly from this into a discussion of how China's intervention brought about a new phase in the air war, in which the communists were able to stage an effective challenge to UN air superiority, but for the time being, I think it would be best to table this particular discussion for a future episode. For the time being, let's get back to the main narrative. So before I went off on that lengthy tangent, I was talking about how General MacArthur ordered a significant escalation of the bombing campaigns in November 1950, not long after the first reports of China's intervention had reached his desk. General Stratemeyer summarized the gist of his new orders as follows, quote, General MacArthur wanted an all-out air effort against communications and facilities with every weapon at our disposal to halt and destroy the enemy in North Korea, end quote. MacArthur had also compiled a list of specific targets for the Air Force to prioritize the destruction of. Near the top of this list was the bridge over the Yalu River at Sinuju. If the Chinese had truly made the decision to intervene in force, as MacArthur had come to suspect they had, destroying the bridge at Sinuju was the most logical course of action, at least from a purely military perspective. Stratemeyer was prepared to carry out this mission, but being aware of the potential geopolitical ramifications that such an attack might have, he would only do so after consulting with his higher-ups in the Air Force's chain of command. Said higher-ups then passed the message along to the Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, who in turn contacted President Truman, who stated that he would, quote, approve such a mission only if there was an immediate and serious threat to the security of our troops, end quote. 
The president also expresses confusion as to why MacArthur had decided to take such a drastic action so suddenly, since every prior communication from Tokyo had reassured him that the strategic situation remained unchanged and that everything was under control. Just two hours before the bombers were scheduled to take off for this mission, the Joint Chiefs of Staff countermanded MacArthur's order, for the first time since the war had begun, and requested that the general explain why he'd issued the order in the first place. In response, MacArthur sent the following missive, quote, Men and material in large force are pouring across all bridges over the Yalu River from Manchuria. This movement not only jeopardizes, but threatens the ultimate destruction of all the forces under my command. The only way to stop this reinforcement of the enemy is the immediate destruction of these bridges and the subjection of all installations in the north, supporting the enemy's advance to the maximum of our air destruction. Every hour this is postponed will be paid for dearly in American and other United Nations blood. I cannot overemphasize the disastrous effect, both physical and psychological, that will result from the restrictions which you are imposing. I trust the matter will be immediately brought to the attention of the President, as I believe your instructions may well result in a calamity of major proportion, for which I cannot accept the responsibility without his personal knowledge and understanding of the situation." End quote. Truman and the Joint Chiefs were so alarmed by the accusatory and hysterical tone of MacArthur's message that they felt they had little choice but to authorize the mission. By the time his superiors next heard from him two days later, MacArthur had managed to collect himself. He now openly admitted that the entry of Chinese forces had drastically altered the situation in Korea. However, he expressed confidence that with his superior air power, he could prevent the introduction of further manpower and material from China and destroy whatever Chinese forces were left in Korea. In fact, MacArthur was so confident in his position that he intended to launch a renewed offensive in mid-November with the aim of fully occupying North Korea and wrapping up combat operations as soon as possible so that American troops could return home by Christmas. At this point, neither MacArthur nor his superiors had arrived at an accurate understanding of the character of China's intervention. By November 7th, it was reported that Chinese and North Korean troops had, quote, completely broken contact with UN forces and seemed to have disappeared completely, unquote. To the Joint Chiefs, this development only seemed to confirm MacArthur's assessment that the Chinese had only intervened in moderate numbers and would immediately withdraw when faced with the superior enemy. The Joint Chiefs informed MacArthur that he was allowed to proceed with offensive operations as before, but they would exercise a higher level of scrutiny when it came to his actions. More importantly, as a result of this ordeal, the aura of infallibility that had been built up around MacArthur as a result of the successful Incheon operation had begun to dissipate. In the wake of China's intervention, MacArthur chose to double down on his previous claims. In due time, he would be proven wrong, and this mistake would ultimately cost him dearly. November 23rd was Thanksgiving Day, a federal holiday in the United States. In the customary Thanksgiving address to the American people, President Truman urged his countrymen to, quote, appeal to the Most High that the God of our fathers who has blessed this land beyond all others will, in his infinite mercy, grant to all nations that peace which the world cannot give. I entreat them in church, chapel, and synagogue, in their homes and in busy walks of life, every day and everywhere, to pray for peace." End quote. The American soldiers in the field, although thousands of miles from home and already enduring the frigid conditions of the early North Korean winter, passed the day in high spirits. Thanks to an impressive logistical effort, the soldiers were provided with a rather extravagant traditional Thanksgiving meal of roast turkey, cranberry sauce, mashed potatoes, pumpkin pie, and the like. Reminiscing on this feast in the difficult months that were to follow, many soldiers said that it was the best meal they'd ever eaten. 
Some British and other non-American soldiers at the front mocked their comrades for going to such great lengths to provide a facsimile of domestic comfort in the middle of an active war zone. As one British soldier pondered, quote, I couldn't stop asking myself what on earth it had all cost, unquote. Others were just plainly impressed that the Americans were capable of pulling off such an impressive logistical achievement in the first place. As I said, spirits across the front were high. The end of the war was in sight, and all they had to do was push a little further and the whole thing would be over. General MacArthur flew in from Tokyo the day before and did a tour of the front lines. He reassured everyone he spoke to that the war would be over very soon, and repeated his promise that they would all be home by Christmas. The soldiers had every reason to believe him every time he said this. Little did any of them know that in just two days, the entire course of the war was about to change drastically. MacArthur wanted his troops to continue their advance the day after Thanksgiving, November 24th. New orders were issued that morning, and the UN troops broke camp and prepared to move out. Meanwhile, the Chinese People's Volunteer Army lay in wait. When the PVA suspended offensive operations and fell back in early November, just a week and a half after they had made first contact, enemy strategians concluded that the Chinese had simply lost their nerve and believed that the entire intervention would be called off shortly. In reality, General Peng Dehuai had merely decided to pull his forces back temporarily in order to build up strength and plan for the next offensive. By choosing to continue the northward advance of his troops, MacArthur was unwittingly playing directly into the hands of his enemy. The further north the UN troops advanced, the more they would have to spread out to cover the area, the more the strains on their supply lines would increase, and the more vulnerable they would become. As Peng put it, quote, The more arrogant MacArthur is, the better it is for us. End quote. His decision to bide his time paid off. By November 25th, the arrival of nine additional divisions from China brought the PVA strength from about 260,000 to about 350,000, and as high as 400,000, according to some estimates, putting them on equal footing with their enemy in terms of manpower. The Chinese also had the element of surprise on their side, despite it having been over a month since they first crossed the border. Most of the UN troops in North Korea were concentrated in a line along the Chongchon River in the northwest of the country, stretching from the Yellow Sea coast to the foothills of the Taebaek Mountains. Once again, General Peng's strategy was to target the sectors of the line held by South Korean troops, as they were seen as being more vulnerable. This time, it was the ROK Army's 2nd Corps on the eastern flank of the Allied lines that would bear the brunt of the initial assault. Peng summarized the overall strategy in the following missive, quote, as a main objective, one of the units must fight its way rapidly around the enemy to cut off their rear. Route of attack must avoid highways and flat terrain in order to keep tanks and artillery from hindering attack operations. Night warfare and mountainous terrain must have a definite plan and liaison between platoon command. Small leading patrol groups attack and then sound the bugle. A large number will follow at that time in column. End quote. The battle began just after dusk on the evening of November 25th as the PVA's 38th and 42nd Corps slammed into the ROK Army's 2nd Corps on the eastern flank. Attacking in compact combat groups of 50 to 100 men, the Chinese easily broke through the enemy's practically non-existent defenses and overran their positions. Even as reports of the Chinese attack flooded in, General Walton Walker, commander of the U.S. 8th Army, remained unperturbed and made no effort to reinforce the South Koreans in these critical first hours. Before the night was over, the ROK 2nd Corps began to falter, thus putting the entire UN line in imminent danger of being encircled. Author Max Hastings describes the scene in the following way, quote, 
The 9th Infantry Division had no doubt that they were engaged against the Chinese, but poor communications and extraordinary command lethargy hampered their comrades in rousing themselves to meet this new threat. In camps and vehicle concentrations along the length of the Changchun River Valley, Americans found themselves awakened in their sleeping bags by a terrifying cacophony of bugles, drums, rattles, whistles, grenades, and gunfire. End quote. Still, General Walker did not suspend the ongoing offensive operation until the 27th. It would take the near-total destruction of the ROK Army 2nd Corps later that day for the gravity of the situation to set in. An 18-year-old private named Mario Scarsaletta of the U.S. Army 25th Infantry Division later recalled the chaotic scene he and his comrades encountered on the night of the 26th near the village of Ipsok. Quote, when the shooting began around us, our first thought was to pull back. Our lieutenant told us that we couldn't leave until we received word from the battalion commander, which upset all of us greatly. Then, as the shooting closed in around us, someone shouted, Every man for himself. Then there was real chaos. Everyone just bugged out of there. We just started running. We ended up walking for four days straight. There was a complete loss of leadership. It was a nightmare, really. Many times I felt that we'd never make it out of there. That to survive this would be a miracle. I still think about it. End quote. Although it certainly may not have seemed like it at the moment, Scarsaletta and the men of the 25th got lucky compared to their counterparts and the 2nd Infantry Division just a few miles upstream. Despite a desperate rearguard action fought by the Turkish Brigade, the 2nd Infantry Division had been outflanked and was surrounded by enemies on both sides as they tried to retreat down the road south to Sunchyon. The re result was an even more chaotic scene than the one that had unfolded to the northwest. The following account of the Battle of Kunuri can be found in Hanley's book, Ghost Flames, and is written from the perspective of Corporal Clarence Adams of the 503rd Artillery Regiment, 2nd Infantry Division. Quote, For five days, the men of A Battery, 503rd Field Artillery, have pulled back in confusion and fear step by step, inching away from an often hidden Chinese enemy, with little sleep, little time to eat, firing off rounds from their howitzers into the unknown, then getting orders to mount up and drive off to another frozen rice paddy to take another short-lived stand. Adams and his fellow gunners have now run out of ammunition, and the battered 2nd Infantry Division has run out of options. All they can do as overwhelming numbers of Chinese troops close in around them is to make a run for it down the hill, down the road from Kunuri to Sunchyon. Behind the chilling din of bugles, whistles, and loudspeakers blaring threats in crude English, the Chinese isolated and cut to pieces entire companies of the 38th Infantry. Their regiment repeatedly pulled back a thousand yards, then two thousand, and regrouped, only to be hit again from a new direction. Infantry companies once 150 men strong were reduced to just 40 or 50. Some of the wounded had to be left behind and froze to death, while battle areas were strewn with dozens of fallen Chinese soldiers. Meanwhile, South Korean units on the right flank withdraw even more rapidly, running south right through the regiment's lines. Adams' A battery can only reposition themselves as ordered and fire off their dwindling rounds into the constantly shifting target areas. Now, the final retreat has been ordered down the road south. Infantry battalions, other artillery units, military police, and headquarters companies are rolling southward in a miles-long convoy. They find the road has become a deadly gauntlet of Chinese machine gunners and mortar men dug into their surrounding hillsides. Along a six-mile-long stretch of road, trucks are hit with mortar rounds and set ablaze. Screams of wounded and dying soldiers are heard amidst the explosions and gunfire. Unquote. Ultimately, as a result of this battle, Corporal Adams would be taken prisoner by the Chinese and spend the rest of the war in various prisoner of war camps in North Korea. I plan to retell his story in greater detail later on in an episode dedicated nearly entirely to the discussion of the POW issue.
On December 2nd, General Walker gave the order to completely withdraw from North Korea, abandoning all territory north of the 38th parallel to the enemy. From the 8th Army's previous position along the Chongchon River, the 38th parallel was over 150 miles away, leading some to refer to this action as the longest retreat in the history of the U.S. military. The rank-and-file soldiers had begun to refer to their ordeal as the Big Bugout. One can imagine the wide range of emotions that these men felt as they fell further and further back. Panic, confusion, frustration, anger, disbelief, and fear, just to name a few. Some of the more far-sighted among them seemed downright embarrassed by the whole affair. Speaking to his secretary, Colonel Paul Freeman of the 23rd Infantry Regiment reportedly stated, quote, Look around here. This is a sight that hasn't been seen for hundreds of years. The men of the United States Army fleeing from the battlefield, abandoning their wounded and running for their lives. End quote. These sentiments were more common among the officer class than among the ranks, and, as we will discuss in the next episode, also among the upper echelons of the military and political hierarchy in Washington, D.C. The units of the 8th Army first regrouped in Pyongyang before continuing on further south. Their priority now was to reestablish a defensive line between the 38th Parallel and Seoul in the hopes of defending the South Korean capital. All along the route of their retreat, the UN forces engaged in a scorched earth campaign, destroying not only just movable supplies, equipment, ammunition, rations, and so on, but raising entire settlements to the ground. Anything that could not be carried along with the military was fair game for destruction, the North Korean capital city being no exception. As one American soldier, Corporal Leonard Corgi, recalled, quote, We went through Pyongyang at night, and the whole city looked like it was burning. In one place, the engineers burned a ration stump about the size of a football field. God, it was a shame to see it in a land of hunger, all that food going up in smoke. There was abandoned U.S. military equipment everywhere. I don't know how much we destroyed. I believe we set on fire most of the villages we passed through. We didn't intend to leave the Chinese too many places to shelter in for the rest of the winter. End quote. Another American soldier drew parallels between the retreat from North Korea and the conduct of the German army in Ukraine. Quote, we just burned everything. Food, whatever the hell else. We left nothing. End quote. Of course, the intention of such scorcher tactics was to slow the enemy's advance and hopefully buy themselves more time to regroup. Unbeknownst to them, however, the PVA's logistics were in such disarray that they decided not to pursue the retreating UN forces too closely. This meant that, as was so often the case in this war, the main group of people adversely affected by this policy were not Chinese soldiers, but rather Korean civilians. The devastation of Pyongyang and its hinterlands resulted in a renewed refugee crisis, as some 300,000 of the area's residents desperately attempted to flee the area. With streams of refugees crowding the road south, the same fears that had led to the Nogunri massacre resurfaced, namely that these refugees would hinder their retreat, or worse, that there may be enemy infiltrators among the crowds. At first, efforts were made to deter the refugees' passage south. For instance, they were forbidden from crossing the Taedong River south of Pyongyang, either by boat or by using the improvised pontoon bridges constructed by the engineering corps. Undeterred, some attempted to climb across the mangled ruins of the Taedong Bridge, which had been demolished by UN bombing raids several months earlier. Many fell from the wreckage and drowned. A photograph taken by AP reporter Max Desfor showing this dramatic scene won a Pulitzer Prize the following year. Still, other civilians took their chances trying to wade or swim across the freezing water. By December 5th, orders were issued to open fire on refugees if they attempted to cross UN lines, exactly as had happened that past summer. Captain Norman Allen later recalled the moral dilemma that he and his fellow soldiers faced at this time, quote, The refugees. Awful moments there. 
deep memories. So pitiful, so desperate, but they also hampered our movement by day and threatened our positions at night. What were we to do about them? The problem drove me wild. We were tied in on the road with a company from another battalion. They came right up to our lines and we had to fire tracers over their heads to stop them from overrunning us. Shortly thereafter, we began to receive incoming mortar fire. The other company reported that one of its platoon had become overrun by the enemy, who had mixed in with the refugees. When a roadblock reported that refugees were pressing in and the pressure was growing, the men requested permission to open fire. I asked who these refugees were. Men, women, children, or what? They replied, mostly women and children, but there are men behind them who look to be of military age. I paused. The roadblock came over the radio again, urgently, desperately, requesting permission to fire. I told them to fire more tracer rounds and then fall back to higher ground. I could not order firing on those thousands upon thousands of pitiful refugees. End quote. Not every soldier shared Captain Allen's compunctions. In many other places, columns of fleeing refugees were sprayed with machine gun rounds and strafed by fighter planes. Just one of these unfortunate refugees among thousands was 18-year-old Pyongyang resident Moon Yun Song. In October, he and his family had been among those who turned out to cheer for President Syngman Rhee when he visited Pyongyang shortly after the UN forces captured the city. Now, less than three months later, they were running for their lives, following a railway embankment south. The news that the UN forces had decided to abandon the city came as a shock to them. Every bit as unimaginable was what happened next, as Moon described in an interview dated October 1985. Quote, There were too many people, and we couldn't keep together. When the American fighters came, machine-gunning the roads, everyone scattered like bean shoots in the wind. End quote. The Big Bug Out, as the American GIs called it, continued for what must have seemed like ages. It was not until December 26 that the UN forces were able to establish a somewhat stable defensive line north of Seoul, centered on the city of Ujongbu. But for the time being, I feel like we've talked about the plight of the 8th Army quite enough. We'll catch up with them as they struggle with the communists for control over the South Korean capital once again in the next episode. But for now, I'd like to cover events that were happening simultaneously to the East. For whatever reason, in the war's historiography, all these engagements between the PVA and the 8th Army along the Chongchon River that I previously described are all considered to be parts of one single battle, which began on November 25th and ended on December 2nd. I don't want to diverge into a pedantic discussion about the definitions of the word campaign, battle, and action, since that seems like it would be a waste of time. In any event, I think I understand why historians have decided to classify things this way, at least in this particular instance. I believe that the Battle of the Chongchon River is classified as such, so as to distinguish it from the other, more famous battle that ran concurrently to it, the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, also known as the Battle of Lake Chengjin. Generally speaking, I try to avoid giving blow-by-blow -blow analyses of individual battles for a few reasons, not the least of which being that I believe going into such a granular level of detail is not really necessary for the big picture that I try to stay focused on. That said, however, I am willing to make exceptions for particular battles that I feel are central to the main narrative, or ones that are exceptionally famous or well-known outside of academic circles. Both of these are accurate in the case of this particular battle that I'm about to get into, but I'll have more to say on this matter towards the end of this episode after I'm done covering the actual events. So, without further ado, let's discuss the single most famous battle of the Korean War. As I said, at the time the Chinese launched their second phase offensive, most of the UN forces in Korea were concentrated on the western side of the country. In the east, there was a smaller contingent, the US Army 10th Corps, which consisted of the 1st Marine Division, the 3rd and 7th Divisions of the US Army, and two South Korean divisions. 
Exactly as Peng had predicted, the divisions of 10th Corps were forced to spread themselves thinly across the northwestern portion of the country. The 7th Infantry pushed straight for the Yalu, reaching the town of Hyesan far to the northeast by November 21st, making them the first, and as it would turn out, only American unit to make it to the border. Over 270 miles to the southwest, the 1st Marine Division was preoccupied with mopping up what they believed to be the last of the communist resistance around the area of Lake Changjin. Lake Changjin is a large artificial lake in north-central North Korea. The strategic importance of the area was due to the presence of a number of hydroelectric power plants, as well as the fact that the surrounding roads were the only way to safely navigate the mountainous terrain. The reason why Lake Changjin is commonly referred to as the Chosen Reservoir, mostly in Western-centric sources, and why the battle is mostly remembered as the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, is because the maps used by UN troops to navigate North Korea dated back to the colonial period, and therefore many geographic features in the North were known to Americans only by their Japanese names, hence the Chosen Reservoir. Going forward, I will be using the two terms more or less interchangeably depending on the context, but just know that whatever the case, these two names refer to the exact same location. Anyway, the 1st Marines were still in the vicinity of Lake Changjin when the Chinese sprung the trap. Winter had set in early that year in North Korea, and the conditions around the lake had become particularly harsh by late November. It's estimated that temperatures dropped as low as negative 36 degrees Fahrenheit at this time. With temperatures this low, numerous complications arose that made it difficult, in some cases impossible, for the soldiers to perform their regular duties. Firstly, in such low temperatures, people become very susceptible to hypothermia, frostbite, and other conditions. Articles of clothing froze to the skin, making removing clothes to, say, treat a wound, an often painful and potentially hazardous process. Further complicating matters, medical supplies, such as morphine and blood plasma, had been frozen solid and rendered practically unusable. The freezing temperatures also had adverse effects on a lot of military equipment. Vehicles would often have trouble starting, batteries for radios could not hold their charge, and firearms were prone to jam or misfire. Here, I quote from the account of Corporal Harold Mulhausen of the 7th Regiment, 1st Marine Division. Quote, By this time in late November, the weather was turning cold. The wind was blowing, the sky spitting snow, and the streams and rivers were freezing. We still hadn't been issued our winter gear. We weren't even able to build a fire, save for rare occasions. Just before Thanksgiving, we finally received our parkas and cold-weather clothing. By this time, the temperature had already dropped to just 20 degrees above zero, and we were still heading north. To this day, I cannot think of Korea without also thinking of the intense cold." End quote. In other words, to paraphrase historian of the Korean War Roy Appleman, few battles in history have been fought in worse weather conditions than the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. When planning his offensive, General Pung was aware of the 1st Marine Division's location relative to other elements of the 10th Corps. He believed that if he was able to isolate the Marines and completely cut them off from other divisions, his forces could easily overwhelm and annihilate them. Another division of the 10th Corps would likely attempt to rescue the trapped Marines, in which event Pung believed he could outmaneuver these reinforcements and hopefully destroy another division in the process, or at least inflict losses severe enough to take it out of commission for an extended period of time. The effective destruction of one, potentially two, entire UN divisions would be a stunning victory for the PVA, seriously hampering the enemy's future efforts to defend the South and irrevocably turning the course of the war in the Communists' favor. At least this was Peng's line of thought when he committed the entire PVA 9th Army to attack the Americans at Lake Changjin. The 9th Army was made up of 12 divisions, each of which, on paper, consisted of 10,000 soldiers, putting their total strength at 120,000. The plan had initially been to launch the attack on the 25th, simultaneously with the offensive operations to the west. 
However, due to logistical issues, the battle at Lake Chengjin actually began two days later. Captain Wang Shuidong of the 102nd Regiment, 58th Division, offered the following assessment of the PVA's position going into the battle. Quote, On the evening of November 27th, the headquarters ordered a general attack, which centered on the Chosen Reservoir along the eastern front. The attack force consisted of eight infantry divisions, which made use of some very successful tactics on the first night of the attack. First, the 9th Army Group achieved a big surprise since its entry into North Korea had remained undetected for ten whole days. The U.S. 1st Marine Division and the 7th Infantry Division, the main strength of the 10th Corps, were traveling in one column along a small mountain road and were stretched out for over 50 miles. Surprised and unprepared for such a large attack, they had been broken down into five sections by the next morning. They were separated by the PVA troops at Yudam-ri, Sinhong-ri, Koto-ri, Hawak-ri, and Sachang-ri. Second, in order to destroy as many regiments as possible, rather than simply pushing them back into South Korea, the 9th Army Group purposely concentrated a total of 100,000 men. The UN forces engaged in the fighting near the Chosen Reservoir consisted of about 40,000 troops. Third, we were able to surround the separated UN units. The 20th Army surrounded part of the 1st Marine Division at Hawak-ri from three different directions. To our surprise, however, numerical superiority and rapid encirclement did not bring us victory." End quote. While some of the numbers provided in Wang's account do not line up with the historical record, the PVA 9th Army consisted of 120,000 men, not 100,000, and the number of American soldiers at Lake Chengjin was closer to 30,000 than it was to 40,000. However, the overall point still stands. With their superior numbers, the Chinese should have been able to overwhelm their enemy in a matter of days. This, of course, raises an important question. Why were they unable to accomplish this? At the risk of sounding overly nonspecific, in a conflict like the Korean War, where there were countless contingent factors at play, there's no easy and convenient answer to a question as broad as this. As it regards this particular battle, historians tend to attribute the failure of the PVA to achieve a decisive victory at Lake Chengjin to two main factors, logistical issues and tactical miscalculations. Now, I've alluded to the logistical problems that plagued the PVA during the Korean War, but I have yet to discuss the subject in any depth. At the risk of getting a bit ahead of myself, I will say that the Chinese war effort would continue to be characterized by such issues throughout the entire duration of the war, more or less, so I plan to discuss the topic in a more exhaustive manner in the future, most likely in the next episode. For our purposes here, what I will say is that American air superiority in Korea severely hampered the ability of the PVA to transport men, supplies, and equipment to the front lines. As a result, the army struggled to supply and resupply itself, especially in the critical early weeks of the intervention. Chinese soldiers not only ran short on ammunition, but on more basic provisions. Supplies of food were stretched thin, and the men were forced to subsist on what amounted to a starvation diet, usually no more than a couple handfuls of millet flour per day. There was also an acute shortage of winter clothing, which, in the winter conditions that I described previously, often proved fatal. As Captain Wong of the PVA from whom I quoted a bit ago described the issue, quote, There were some unexpected problems during our first week in North Korea. We were clearly not adequately prepared for such a huge offensive assignment. Firstly, the logistical services failed to keep up with the movement of our combat troops. We were thrown hastily into combat without good preparations and had serious breakdowns in our supply and transportation systems. Secondly, the cold weather hit our troops very hard. Our commanders did not have any idea how cold the winter in North Korea would be. We had not been issued our winter clothing by the time we had entered the country. We lacked gloves, caps, and even winter shoes. Most of us came from southeastern China, where the average annual temperature is 72 degrees Fahrenheit. In North Korea, we encountered temperatures well below zero degrees. 
Many soldiers became ill and could not keep up with their regiments. Our division lost 700 men to frostbite in the first week alone, end quote. Ultimately, the PVA would lose more men to starvation, illness, and exposure than to the enemy's bombs and bullets. Then there's the issue of tactics. For the soldiers of the People's Volunteer Army, the Chinese Civil War, which had only concluded in late 1949, was very much within recent memory. The majority of these soldiers were veterans of the Civil War, including several thousands who had fought for the Nationalists. According to one estimate, former Nationalist soldiers may have constituted up to 30% of the PVA's total strength. During the Civil War, in order to defeat the better trained and better equipped Nationalists, the Communists had adopted unconventional military tactics, and it was to the use of such tactics that many Communist leaders had attributed their victory. Since they were also facing a better trained and better equipped enemy in Korea, the Chinese defaulted to the same sorts of tactics that they had used so successfully during their Civil War. In the early stages of China's involvement in the Korean War, the tactic most commonly used in battle was something that Chinese language sources refer to as the short attack, or the three and three fire teams tactic. The way it typically worked was as follows. A number of fire teams, groups of three soldiers each, would stealthily get as close as possible to an enemy position while still being able to avoid detection. They would approach at multiple angles, targeting the weakest points in the enemy lines, and in keeping with their prior behavior, they would only conduct combat operations under the cover of night not through any choice of their own, but by necessity. Once within range, the fire teams would launch their attack, throwing several grenades and opening fire with their PPSH-41 submachine guns, which were fully automatic and could fire 1,250 rounds in one minute. The shock and confusion caused by the initial attack would usually cause a breach in the enemy's defenses. Once this had been accomplished, the fire teams would fall back, and a larger formation of troops, usually the size of a platoon, between 30 and 50, would launch a full frontal assault, relying on the shock of their charge to overwhelm the defenders. This pattern was carried out repeatedly until the desired result, either the destruction or the withdrawal of enemy forces, was achieved. Indeed, these attacks, especially the successive frontal assaults, left a deep psychological impression on their enemies. U.S. servicemen began to use the term human wave attack to describe Chinese tactics during the Korean War. This term, in turn, was widely adopted by Western media and later by historians, many of whom simply repeated it uncritically. This has led to the creation of a false perception of the war in the popular imagination, an image of hordes of Chinese soldiers charging mindlessly headlong into machine gun fire in vast human seas, in the hopes that their sheer numbers would suffice to overwhelm their enemy. To clarify, it is true that the PVA did rely heavily on frontal assaults of large numbers of infantry, especially in the earlier stages of the war. It is also true that the PVA's commanders were willing to accept relatively high numbers of casualties in order to achieve their objectives. However, in media relating to the Korean War, especially older media, one can often see depictions of Chinese military tactics similar to what I just outlined a second ago. Not only is this perception not historically accurate and an oversimplification, it also relies on and contributes to archaic notions of race that I'm sure a lot of us today would agree are somewhat problematic. My apologies for getting off topic there. Anyway, as I said before, the Chinese had used infiltration and shock tactics like what I described to a great effect in their initial battles with UN forces in Korea, like on Jong Un-san and the Chongchon River, but not so much at the Chosen Reservoir slash Lake Chengjin. As the battle dragged on for several days, the enemy began to recognize the pattern of the PVA's attacks, and they had become somewhat predictable. As one U.S. Army captain would later recall, quote, We were always attacked in the same places at almost the same time of night. They always made a lot of noise right before they charged, too. It's as if they made no real attempt to surprise us. 
end quote. In time, the UN forces would adapt to their enemy's tactics and take measures to render them less effective. As one of the most elite units under the UN command in Korea, the 1st Marine Division was in many ways better prepared to take such proactive measures than their counterparts in other branches of the military, who would later adopt these measures wholesale. This was certainly the impression that they made on their enemies at Chosin, as Captain Wang Chui-dong attested, quote, To our surprise, superiority in numbers and quick encirclement did not bring us victory. Even though we were able to trap the 1st Marine Division and cut it into smaller pieces on the very first night of the battle, we could not destroy this division completely. On November 28th, the 58th Division employed three of its regiments to attack the divided and surrounded U.S. Marines at Hawak Ri. This battle turned out to be extremely fierce and difficult. The Marines were indeed some of the toughest fighters among the UN forces. After being divided and surrounded, they immediately formed defensive perimeters at three different places with the help of tanks. They also constructed a makeshift airstrip for the resupply of ammunition and winter equipment, as well as for evacuating their wounded. They were able to hold their ground with their superior firepower and air support. They exhausted our repeated attempts to annihilate their companies and smaller units. End quote. The Marines were quick to recognize that the Chinese held the advantage in nocturnal combat, and during the battle they sought to nullify this advantage. One way they went about this was by taking more active security measures at night, posting sentries, sending out patrols, and securing their perimeter with barbed wire and landmines. Such routines were common practice in the U.S. Marine Corps and were part of their training, unlike their counterparts in the Army, just one of the reasons why the 1st Marine Division managed to escape complete destruction. Something else that the UN forces would do in this regard was to illuminate the battlefield at night by use of flares, and later on, searchlights. This would go a long way towards negating the advantage that their enemy held in nighttime combat, especially in a psychological sense, as one US Army lieutenant would later recall. Quote, How we loved having those flares. They made all the difference during the night. When we set them off, the battlefield was not nearly as frightening for the men. They would scan for an enemy on the move and bring down devastating firepower on the unwelcome visitors. End quote. Here as well, the Marines were better prepared to handle these situations, as they were issued flare guns in their standard kits. The army would not receive flares or floodlights until some time after the retreat. Despite being outnumbered by nearly four to one, the Marines at the Chosen Reservoir were still under orders to hold their ground against the enemy. General Edward Almond, commander of the 10th Corps, flew in by helicopter on the 27th to consult personally with his officers at the front. He insisted, over-optimistically, that offensive operations would recommence shortly, and that this was nothing but a minor setback. Quote, We're still attacking and we're going all the way to the Yalu. Don't let a bunch of Chinese laundrymen stop you. End quote. Evidently, the general and his staff were yet to grasp the precarious position of the men at Lake Changjin. As one staff officer later said, quote, We didn't see it as a tragedy because we had no idea how terrible their losses were until they made it out. End quote. In the following passage, Harold Mulhausen, the Marine Corporal who I quoted from earlier, recalls how close he and his unit came to facing certain death in the early days of the battle. Quote, With fighting in the hills all around us, we remained at 50% watch. At about 1 that morning, we were ordered to pull back 200 yards. This time, we set up our 3.5-inch rockets in a field by the road. We tried to dig in, but the ground was so frozen we had no success. There were firefights everywhere, so we were put on 100% watch. Somehow we managed to avoid direct contact with the enemy that night, but we sure as hell didn't avoid contact with the cold. By dawn, the thermometer had dropped to 30 degrees below zero. We were given three days' worth of rations and told to move further back. They ordered us to take a hill, which we did after a full day of hard fighting. We were helped by airstrikes, but unfortunately, one of the F-51 Mustangs hit one of our men in the ankle, and he lost his foot as a result. That night, we set up a perimeter around the top of the hill and stood watch in the bone-chilling cold. 
Everywhere we looked around us, we saw firefights. Clearly, the Chinese army had surrounded us. The marines in the valley had begun to burn huge piles of supplies to prevent them from falling into enemy hands. Under cover of darkness, we moved off the hill very quietly. My sergeant came by and checked our persons for anything that made noise. If we had anything like that, we had to tie it down or throw it away. We moved slowly down the hill, slipping and sliding. Then we just walked and walked, sometimes in snow that came all the way up to our knees. The poor devils in the vanguard got the honor of clearing the path for the rest of us. At times, the Chinese got so close that we could overhear them talking. When that happened, everyone got extremely quiet and made no noise at all. Nobody had to tell us how serious the situation was. We walked by one foxhole that contained three dead Chinese soldiers, all of them frozen to death at their posts. All night we walked, with only an occasional rest. When we did stop, we were all so tired that we would fall asleep immediately, and that's when the danger of freezing to death was the greatest. Sometimes we punched and kicked each other so none of us would die that way. End quote. By November 30th, it had become readily apparent that the Marines' position near the Chosen Reservoir was untenable. Their commanders decided that the only way to prevent the complete destruction of the entire division was to start a fighting retreat to Hungnam, a port city over a hundred miles to the southeast from which the survivors could be evacuated by ship. On the eastern shore of the lake, only the men of Task Force RCT-31 could cover the right flank of the retreat and prevent the complete encirclement of the rest of the division. RCT-31 was a task force that had been attached to the 1st Marine Division, made up of men from the 7th Infantry. It had been hastily assembled and was under strength, at that time consisting of less than 2,500 men. They faced two full-strength PVA divisions, the 80th and the 81st, 20,000 men in total. RCT-31 is better known as Task Force Faith, taking its name from Lieutenant Colonel Don C. Faith, who assumed command over the task force after its original commander was killed in action. By the third day of the battle, the task force's position was desperate. They'd lost nearly half their men and were running low on ammunition. They were also becoming increasingly isolated from the rest of the division. That night, Faith managed to relay one final radio message to the 1st and 7th Marine regiments a few miles down the road at Haragu-ri. Quote, Unless someone can help us, I don't have much hope that any of us are going to make it out of this. End quote. He was told that he could expect air support, but that the other regiments were too tied down to come to his aid. Realizing that he and his men faced certain death if they remained in place for much longer, Faith took the initiative and decided to attempt to break through the enemy lines to regroup with the main body of the division. He ordered his men to destroy their remaining heavy equipment, save for the trucks that were needed to carry the wounded. The task force moved out on the morning of December 1st. A long column of trucks inched its way eastward down a gravel road, taking heavy fire from the surrounding hills. American bombers strafed enemy positions, trying to buy the task force more time, but at one point they missed their target, dropping a napalm bomb on a group of infantrymen towards the front of the column. Private James Ransom Jr., a survivor of this friendly fire incident, reported, quote, It hit and exploded right in the middle of my squad. I don't know how in the world the flames missed me. Men all around me burned. The men rolled around in the snow in agony and begged me to shoot them as their skin burned to a crisp and peeled back like fried potato chips, end quote. Further down the road, the column's advance ground to a halt once again as it encountered a formidable enemy roadblock. By that time, dusk was rapidly approaching, and Faith, aware that he could no longer count on air support once night fell, knew that he had to take drastic action to get the convoy moving again. He personally led an assault on the roadblock, but was severely wounded by a frag grenade in the process and was dragged back to one of the trucks. Eventually, the roadblock was cleared, and the convoy continued its advance, only to encounter another enemy roadblock further down the way. Now, unimpaired by the aerial bombardment, the Chinese pressed their attack. They managed to set many of the trucks on fire, killing several of the wounded men, including Lieutenant Colonel Faith. 
With his death, the task force practically disintegrated. Anyone who was still able to walk abandoned the vehicles on the road and tried to make a run for it across the frozen lake. Staff Sergeant Chester Blair recalled the panic that set in among the survivors. Quote, It was every man for himself. The chain of command completely disappeared. I was disoriented, exhausted, nearly frozen, starving, and vomiting blood. The temperature at night was 20 degrees below zero or even colder. The wind was so strong it was difficult to walk or stand on the ice. End quote. In the days that followed, only 1,000 of the task force's original strength of 2,500 managed to make it back across friendly lines. Of the 1,000 survivors, only 385 were still fit for duty after the whole ordeal, meaning that Task Force Faith had suffered a casualty rate of 85%. Indeed, the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, slash Lake Jingjin, has the inglorious distinction of being one of the worst battles in American history as far as casualties are concerned. I'll discuss this in greater detail in the next episode, but with 17,833 casualties overall, of which approximately 2,840 are estimated to have been outright fatalities, there are few battles in American history deadlier than the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir. Some battles with similarly high American casualty counts include the Battle of Antietam and the Second Battle of Bull Run during the Civil War, the Second Battle of the Marne in the First World War, and D-Day in the Second. And while a great many of these casualties can be attributed to the brutal weather conditions, one aspect of this battle that is attested by those who survived it was the brutality of it all. The visceral nature of the close quarters combat that characterized much of this battle made a deep impression on those who survived. Stories circulated that told about acts of seemingly inhuman savagery by the enemy, men stabbed to death while still in their sleeping bags, vehicles transporting wounded soldiers set ablaze or hit by white phosphorus grenades, Corpses of American soldiers found mutilated and stripped of their clothing. But for each story along these lines, there were two or three more that attested to the shared humanity of the soldiers on both sides, and the unusually strong mutual respect that the Americans and Chinese had for each other. There were several documented instances of Chinese soldiers holding their fire temporarily to allow the Americans to retrieve their dead and wounded from the battlefield, and vice versa. There are also a number of anecdotes concerning chance encounters between individual American and Chinese soldiers who, rather than killing each other, came to an unspoken understanding to live and let live. The Chinese were also known to treat their prisoners more humanely than the North Koreans. This lenient treatment was the deliberate policy of the PVA's high command, and it was not adopted for strictly humanitarian reasons. We'll have a lot more to say about the whole prisoner of war issue in a future episode, but in any event, summary executions of surrendered enemy soldiers were rather rare, and were often carried out in the heat of the moment by regular soldiers who acted explicitly against standing orders from their higher-ups. The Chinese also tried to provide their prisoners with adequate food and medical care to the best of their ability, considering the state of their logistics. During the retreat of Task Force Faith, one army serviceman recalled being surrounded by a group of Chinese soldiers while he and his comrades were trying to restart a truck that was carrying wounded men. He claimed, quote, They gave morphine to several men, bandaged their wounds, and after caring for them for a few days, freed them, end quote. As the previous quote suggests, the Chinese also, especially in the earliest phases of their involvement in the war, had a propensity to simply release American POWs after a relatively short period of captivity. Part of the reason for this was because they did not have enough supplies to keep large numbers of prisoners alive for an extended period of time. Sometimes prisoners were released as gestures of goodwill, which usually went unreciprocated by the enemy. In other instances, prisoners were released on the condition that they relayed messages to their superiors upon returning to friendly lines. One American soldier released from the PVA's custody recalled being instructed by a Chinese officer to tell his officers the following, quote, no more petroleum, end quote. By petroleum, the officer was no doubt referring to napalm. 
Even though the soldiers of the PVA were under orders to treat their American adversaries humanely, it seems that many of these individual acts of compassion came from a place of genuine sympathy. At least this was the belief of author William L. White, who claimed that, quote, among the ordinary Chinese people, there remained a considerable goodwill towards the Americans, end quote. As we've seen before, the Chinese had great respect for the martial prowess of their American adversaries. The Americans' notions of the Chinese were a bit more mixed and tended to be colored by racial prejudice, but at least some were willing to openly admit that they admired certain qualities that they saw the Chinese soldiers possessed, specifically their courage, stoicism, and readiness to sacrifice themselves for others. One telling anecdote in this regard comes to us courtesy of an American serviceman named Anthony Herbert. He recalled encountering one Chinese soldier in the spring of 1951 who made a particularly deep impression on him. The soldier in question was a machine gun operator who had stayed behind and continued to fire on Herbert's squad to cover the retreat of his comrades. Eventually, the Chinese soldier was surrounded and ran out of ammunition. Herbert asked for his surrender, but before he could do so, another American shot and killed him. As Herbert recalled, quote, This upset me very much. Chinese or not, the dead machine gunner had been a hell of a soldier. I would have been proud to have had that guy in my unit. End quote. Exactly how widespread sentiments such as these were among American soldiers in Korea is somewhat difficult to determine, but from what I can surmise, Americans generally held the Chinese in higher regard than they did the Koreans. Marine captain and future politician John Chafee offered the following assessment of the Chinese, comparing them favorably to the North Koreans. I apologize for the offensive language, but I'm only reproducing the original quote, as it appears in Arthur H. Mitchell's book, Understanding the Korean War. Quote, the North Koreans were more like Japs in the islands than anyone else. You had to go in and dig them out of caves. You had to kill them. They don't surrender, at least not very often, and certainly not in groups. The Chinks were better equipped than the North Koreans. Their communications were better, and their artillery too. They were more soldier-like, but they did surrender. They had more sense than the Gooks. And if you could prove to them that they were finished, well, they gave up. Of course, it wasn't their own country that they were fighting in, and that may have been the difference. End quote. My apologies for that rather lengthy diversion. To return to the main narrative, while Task Force Faith was attempting to break through the PVA's encirclement on the eastern shore of the lake, on the opposite side, the 5th, 7th, and 11th Marine Regiments managed to fall back successfully to Udamni, then to Haraguri. By December 4th, they had managed to break through once again, they had managed to break through the enemy lines once more, and regrouped with the rest of their division at Kotori, further down the road. The men's spirits were lifted at having rejoined their comrades, but their ordeal was still far from over. There was still quite a ways to go before they reached Hungnam, and they would be harassed by the enemy every step of the way. General Oliver P. Smith, commander of the 1st Marine Division, famously refused to call this operation a retreat, saying, quote, Retreat? Hell, we're not retreating. We're just attacking in a different direction. End quote. Some interpreted this remark as being pure braggadocio on Smith's part, but it was accurate in a sense. Here, there was nowhere for the Marines to retreat to. The only way they could go was forward. Wang Shui-dong, the Chinese captain I quoted from a couple times before, described the PVA's efforts to halt the Marines' withdrawal and the difficulties they encountered in this mission. Quote, Having suffered heavy casualties and exhausted our supplies of food and ammunition, our army, the 20th, was supposed to be relieved by the 26th Army, which had been held in reserve. They were assigned the task of eliminating what was left of the American 1st Marine Division at Hawak-ri, but the 26th never made it there. On December 4th, when the 26th Army was still 50 miles away, the Marines broke through the 20th Army's encirclement at Hawak-ri and began their retreat. 
Unable to stop the marines by ourselves, we were ordered to slow their retreat and stay with them until our reinforcements had the chance to catch up and destroy them. For the next 11 days, the remnants of the 20th army harassed the marines with small-scale attacks. We would ambush them, hit them hard, and then run. During the night, we established roadblocks in order to hinder their path, but during the day, the marines managed to break through them and move south about 5 to 10 miles every day. They traveled down the road as we stalked them from the hills and mountains high above." End quote. Meanwhile, the other divisions of 10th Corps, which managed to avoid any major engagements with the enemy, had been ordered to fall back to Hung Nam. Some of the 10th Corps' officers believed that they could hold the area through the winter and launch a counteroffensive to retake the north once weather permitted. Their superiors, MacArthur especially, did not share their optimism. The orders from Tokyo were clear. A defensive perimeter was to be established around the port in order to hold off the enemy just long enough for the 10th Corps to be evacuated to the south by sea. The battered and bruised remnants of the 1st Marine Division made it back to Allied lines late in the evening of December 11th, a little over two weeks since their ordeal at the Chosen Reservoir had first begun. The survivors must have been quite a sight for the soldiers standing guard that night. One war correspondent reported seeing, quote, men with exhausted and red-rimmed eyes, filthy stubble and filthy faces, clothes stiff with ice, some with blood frozen over wounds, some using rifles as crutches, limping along on frostbitten feet, end quote. Awaiting them in Hongnam Harbor was a flotilla of 193 ships of varying size. Their crews had been tasked with transporting over 100,000 American and South Korean troops and as much cargo as they could take south to Busan. In Ghost Flames, Hanley describes the chaotic scenes that unfolded in the city as the evacuation took place. Quote, in a matter of days, Hongnam Harbor has become one of the world's most busy ports, as an epic seaborne evacuation takes place over its cold, dark waters. The three-mile-wide anchorage on North Korea's eastern coast is crowded with Liberty and Victory ships of the U.S. Merchant Marine, U.S. Navy landing craft and large troop transports, chartered merchant vessels from Japan, and a small fleet of lighters constantly shuttling from shore to ship. 5,000 local civilians recruited as longshoremen labored day and night at the docks. Unlike their retreat in the west, the 10th Corps' overland route south is blocked by the enemy. The sea is their only escape, and the early northern winter has made the hurried evacuation doubly demanding." Unquote. Since they were in the worst shape, the marines were the first aboard the ships, followed in turn by each of the other remaining divisions. As the Chinese and North Koreans closed in on the city and time began to run out, a potentially massive issue presented itself. Tens of thousands of Korean civilians, refugees, had converged on the area, hoping to secure safe passage to the south aboard the ships. Their rationales for fleeing from the north varied widely. Some wished to reunite with family in the south. Some were motivated by fear of the Chinese, who they saw as foreign invaders. And others feared that the UN bombing campaign in the north would only escalate. Rumors had begun to circulate that the Americans were considering resorting to atomic bombs. Still, a great many tried to flee the North because of an antipathy towards communism or to communists, or because they feared being targeted by the communists for having collaborated with the enemy. For whatever reason, General Almond had only accounted for this final group of people when organizing the evacuation from Hongnam. His initial plan had called for only 4,000 Korean civilians, the ones identified as the closest collaborators with the occupation forces along with their families, to be granted passage to Busan. At first, General Almond was hesitant to deviate from his plan, not in the least because he feared that there could be communist infiltrators among the throngs of refugees. But thanks to the intercession of Dr. Bong Hak-hyun, a Korean advisor to the 10th Corps, Almond changed his mind and agreed to evacuate as many refugees as he possibly could. Hundreds of people crowded onto vessels designed to accommodate just a fraction of this number. 
For instance, one ship, the SS Meredith Victory, a cargo ship that under normal circumstances would carry no more than 60 passengers, including the crew, managed to fit more than 14,000 Korean refugees aboard. As a result, this specific vessel, the SS Meredith Victory, is credited with undertaking the largest humanitarian rescue by a single vessel. It was one of the final ships that departed Hungnam, doing so at 11am on December 23rd. Despite the dark and cramped conditions in the cargo hold, not one person is reported to have died during the three-day voyage to Busan. In fact, five children were born aboard the ship, whom the crewmen affectionately nicknamed Kimchi-1, Kimchi-2, Kimchi-3, Kimchi-4, and Kimchi-5. Given the timing of events and the circumstances, some of the refugees, many of them Christians, couldn't help but draw comparisons to the birth of Jesus Christ 1,950 years earlier. The ship's captain, Leonard LaRue, later reflected, quote, I often think on that voyage. I think of how such a small vessel was able to hold so many persons and surmount such endless perils without harm to a single soul. And, as I think, the clear, unmistakable message comes to me on that Christmas tide in the bleak and bitter waters off the shores of Korea, that God's own hand was at the helm of my ship, end quote. Also aboard the ship were the future parents of Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea from 2017 to 2022. He would be born two years later at a refugee camp on Gyoje Island near Busan. All told, some 86,000 civilian refugees were evacuated from Hongnam, and thousands more were evacuated from the port cities of Wonsan and Songjin, bringing the total number to 98,000. On a more somber note, it is believed that at least as many, perhaps more, had been left behind. Anyway, I'm getting a bit off topic here. Shortly after the final vessels laden with soldiers, refugees, and cargo departed Hungnam Harbor, an enormous explosion could be heard from the shore. This was the result of the detonation of over 500 tons of ammunition and explosives that had been left behind. This had been done intentionally to both prevent the enemy from using the ordnance that couldn't be shipped off, and to render the harbor and its facilities useless. Hastings posits that the destruction of Hungnam Harbor was less of an action of military utility and, quote, more of a gesture of frustration, of embittered anger and disappointment, end quote. Regardless of how one chooses to read into the intentions behind this act, it was no doubt a fittingly explosive coda to what is considered one of the most dramatic battles of the entire Korean War. Earlier, I said that I would offer a further assessment of the Battle of Lake Changjin and or the Chosen Reservoir after discussing the events themselves, but for the sake of continuity and time management, I feel it would be best to move this discussion to the next episode. Following this, we will discuss the reactions of all parties involved in the war to the tumultuous events of November and December 1950 more broadly before proceeding with the main narrative once again. Before doing my usual sign-off, though, I'd like to apologize once again for the rather significant delay on this episode. As I explained, this is entirely my fault and I will do everything I can to get a new episode released about once every two weeks as per usual. So in other words, you can reasonably expect the next episode around February 24th, although further delays are still possible and very likely. Anyway, if in the meantime you have any questions, comments, or concerns you'd like for me to address, I can always be reached by email at perspectivesinhistorypod at gmail.com. I can also be reached on Facebook and on the website formerly known as Twitter. Links to both pages will be available in this episode's description. If you like the show and want to keep it going for the foreseeable future, you can do so either by becoming a supporter on Patreon or by purchasing some books from me on eBay. Links to both of these sites will also be in the episode's description. And that should about do it for this episode. Again, I'd like to thank you for your patience with this series. Your continued support means a lot to me. Until roughly two weeks from now, this has been the Perspectives in History podcast. Thank you very much for listening.
I'm your host, Will Connor, signing off.